0: Welcome to the podcast from The Temple.
1: I'm Rabbi Peter Berg,
0: And I'm Rabbi Lauren Filson-Lapidus.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Temple, Atlanta's oldest and youngest synagogue. We're back.
0: It's <laughs> so true. Uh, we, we took a little bit of a hiatus. We had this tiny thing called the High Holy Days. <laughs> we happening.
1: did. We took a little bit of our time and energy but um, we did it and on a totally new platform and I'm proud of what we did.
0: You know, in our first podcast episode, we talked about all the equipment and how we couldn't imagine how we would navigate microphones and laptops and software editing and video and audio editing and think about what we have learned in seven months. <laughs> yes.
1: Everyone who works at the temple is now getting issued a certificate of proficiency in TV uh, production.
0: It's, uh, you know, there's a lot about the High Holy Days that we were sad couldn't happen. Um, But as we'll talk about with our guest, you know, challenges do bring opportunities. And we were forced to figure out how to do it and how to make it meaningful. And um, there's a lot that we've learned as a community. And we know we're not alone in having to ask those questions.
1: Yeah, it was so true. Uh, one of the highlights of, of all of it, you know, we ask all the questions, we prepare everything, but one of the real highlights was the music. People, um, you know, just love to be connected to sacred music. And and not only that, in this time of pandemic, I've noticed people are listening to music more, right? Buying mm-hmm. headphones and ear pods and, and really like, you know, experiencing music in new and different ways.
0: It's true. We have, um, our kids now uh, like to take turns being the DJ for Spotify. we do that too. (laughs) So it makes dinner fun and car rides fun. But um, we're trying to expand their horizons a little bit. Um, And, you know, expanding horizons actually was very much on my mind with the guest who who we are featuring in this episode. Because um, when people think about opera and they think about music, they often have strong ideas about what they like and don't like. But um, I will be honest, I, the conversation that we had um, with our guest really did make me think, hmm, maybe I should give opera another try.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Tomer, who we're going to feature in just a moment, um, is a Temple member, which is amazing. He's Israeli, and um, uh, many people don't know that, that he is the real talent behind Atlanta's opera. And he invited me when he first came a number of years ago to several operas and I went as his guest and I really got my first introduction. I saw a few operas when I lived in New York but my real first introduction to opera here in Atlanta.
0: It's probably, um, I don't know if it's appropriate to share, but we got a subscription to the opera and then I was pregnant with Hadara and what we discovered was being quite pregnant and trying to sit through opera was not actually a winning combination. <laughs> All right, it's a, I,
1: I imagine so, it's hard to do. I can't say I know. So we'll,
0: we'll probably have to revisit it uh, uh, now that we're at a little different age and stage. But yes, we are so excited that we um, were able to have a conversation uh, with Tomer Zwilun, who's the uh, general director of the Atlanta Opera, a Temple member, and really picks up in this theme of music, and uplift, and um, new starts, and you'll hear a little bit about what's happening.
1: Absolutely, here's our interview. We are joined today, and we're so excited about it, by Tomers Zvulun, who uh, is the artistic director of the Atlanta Opera here in Atlanta. Um, and um, Tomer is a member of the temple and uh, such an important leader in our community here in Atlanta. Um, Tomer is a medic in the military in Israel, in the Israeli army. And, um, and I, one day, Tomer, you'll tell me how this conversation went because he wanted to be a doctor growing up, like uh, so many of us wanted to do when we were growing up. Uh, and at some point, must have turned to his family and said, Nope, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going into opera instead. And of course he became this prestigious director uh, uh, here and uh, he's been here since 2013 and we're so fortunate to have him. Tomer, welcome to our podcast.
2: Thank you so much, I'm so happy to be with you all. Thank you. Thank we're you. so glad that you're
0: here. Um, so tell us a little bit about the Atlanta Opera and and some of what's going on these days. Um, we trust that some of our listeners might already be familiar, but just in case, give them a, give them a sense of what's going on and, um, and what your role is.
2: So I've been in Atlanta, as Peter mentioned, for the past seven and a half years, time flies. And back in 2013, my wife Susanna and I left New York. Uh, both of us were working at Lincoln Center and uh, we came to Atlanta and we never looked back since then. We absolutely love the community. Uh, the company uh, has seen a, a steady growth. Uh, we doubled our budget and we doubled the amount of our productions that we're doing every year. Uh, and then uh, a few months ago, COVID hit the world and everything kind of um, changed. And we, we made a very quick pivot uh, or a couple of them. Uh, one of them was to transfer or transform our costume shop into manufacturing uh, PPEs and masks uh, for uh, for the medical field for doctors and nurses in the front line, uh, and then we postponed our main stage season. You know we perform in a large opera house for 2,700 seats, uh, very large productions, uh, and we pivoted into creating this uh, this world, this circus world uh, that is right behind me, this tent. Uh, where we will be performing this fall, two productions uh, of uh, Pagliacci, of the opera Pagliacci and Casa from Atlantis uh, in a tent. And the idea behind this was uh, to put safety first and to focus on live performances during a pandemic, finding the grit and the perseverance to create that environment of a spectacle despite the pandemic. So we've been working with Carlos Del Rio, Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University on creating safety protocols that we, are, we have implemented. Uh, and we are moving forward and opening those shows on October 22nd.
1: Well, I, I just wanna say kol which uh, to our listeners means all our incredible respect for uh, first and foremost, putting safety first. For, for transforming a costume shop to PPE is incredible, but also to find a way to bring opera to our people. And I, um, I wanna specifically focus on Kaiser from Atlantis, which, uh, which I know you're working on, because um, that's a show that was literally written in a, in a labor camp during the time of the show of the Holocaust. So tell, tell us a little bit more about that and what our, um, uh, you know, our people can expect as they prepare to come to that show.
2: So so this is an incredibly powerful uh, story, not only from what you're gonna see on stage and and the story of the show itself, but also the history of the piece. Uh, This was written in 1943 in Theresienstadt, which is a labor camp uh, where a large concentration of artists uh, were held by the Nazis. And during that horrible time in, in history, uh, those artists found ways to share their talents and to exercise their humanity and put forward art and music and theater. And so uh, Peter Kinn, the librettist, and Victor Ullman, the composer, came together and wrote this incredible parody about a Kaiser, an emperor, the emperor Al, that oversees all of the world. And he makes a pact with death because he realizes that the more people die, the more power he has. Alas, death discovers that the Kaiser has been taking him for a ride. And he breaks his sword so nobody dies. The world is in a limbo. And the Kaiser, the emperor, loses all his power until he realizes that if he abdicates, if he gives up, order will be restored. And so it's this allegory about power and about government and about a world where uh, things are slightly off kilter, whether it would be a world war, a pandemic, a recession. And so back in 1943, the Nazis looked at this and they heard what those Jews were doing in the labor camp. And they sent SS troops to the final dress rehearsal of the show, and they sent everybody to Auschwitz uh, to their death. And the piece was never premiered until 1975. Uh, And back in 1975, it was premiered by one of my mentors, a wonderful Jewish director named Rhoda Levine, who directed it in Amsterdam. And I ended up assisting her in Boston University in 2001. And it's always been my dream to do this piece. Now, why are we doing it now? Because the world right now, uh, luckily is not anything close to the Holocaust, God help us. We're very far from that. But there's definitely in the world right now, extreme challenges. There's a huge crisis going on. And what happened during Kaiser from Atlantis in 1943 in Theresienstadt is that those artists found a way to perform. They found a way to exercise their humanity, their artistry. And I believe that what we're doing at the Atlanta Opera right now, where it's impossible, virtually impossible to perform live to find a way to do that is a key to exercise our own humanity.
1: Were, were the kids, is, you know, because uh, 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 Peter Kinn, was also directing kids singing at Theresienstadt. Were, were kids involved
2: in this opera? Uh, no, but they were involved in another opera because you know there's two famous operas right. that came out of uh, right. Theresienstadt. One is Kaiser von Atlantis, right. and the other one is Brundibar. Right, That's, is, there's no connection. Well, they both were written in Theresienstadt. It's right. just a different story, and that's where the kids were involved in, and it was, it's a wonderful piece. But you know, there's so much history in what happened in Theresienstadt, and so much art from those two operas to this amazing book called "I Never Saw Another Butterfly," yeah. um, and the poetry that those kids uh, were writing in in that labor camp. So, telling that story right now is critical, uh, and it, it just, uh, yeah. it's just wonderful for us to do it.
0: As you were talking about Kaiser from Atlantis, I was thinking about how powerful it is to bring Judaism um, into, into the story of opera. Um, and would, would this necessarily come if you hadn't had that personal connection to it? Um, all of the ways that we come to, to find um, art and find meaning in it. And so I'm curious, tell us a little bit about Um, what it's like to be Israeli, to be Jewish, um, and, and then to bring that to art and and to artistic direction, because, um, as you were talking about the show and I'm feeling this connection to it, having not seen it, but because just by virtue of being Jewish and feeling our story. So I'm wondering how that all plays together for you.
2: Well, you know, I spent my life growing up in Israel and I will never stop being an Israeli. It doesn't matter how long I will be in America or anywhere I will be, I'm an Israeli, uh, my first, the first sentence that that you read in my biography is Israeli director, uh, and that is never going to go away. Uh, growing up in Israel in the '80s, the shadow of the Holocaust was all around us. The imminent dangers uh, from all the countries surrounding Israel uh, is never stopping. Uh, so you know, we can have peace treaties. We can try to figure out solutions but the imminent danger is there. And so that's a part of what this country is about. It's a country that is that realizes the mortal danger that is out there if history repeats itself. So obviously, I bring this to my work as an artist as a, and as a human being, uh, as somebody who grew up... Uh, for, for most of my life in Israel. Now, I find that, that this story is so relevant right now because this country is absolutely ravaged and torn apart by racism and by inequity and by the danger of what, where things could go if we don't put democracy first, if we don't think about equality, uh, and the Holocaust is, a, is an example. But it's not only the Holocaust. If you look at history, if you look at leadership, uh, where uh, things become tyrannical. And you know, Hitler is just a, one example, one of many. You know, it, it went from Stalin to Mussolini to Franco to Saddam Hussein to Gaddafi. To you, you, you name it. If we're not careful we're going to get there again. And it may it may not be the Jewish race, it may be another color, it may be another group of people, but we cannot allow that. We can't take democracy for granted. And that's something that is very important to talk about right now.
1: Thank you for sharing those. So important. Um, I, I want to follow up on on being Israeli and being in the opera. First, you know, tell us a little bit about your uh, education. Where does where does one study? But but also, how how many Israelis are in prominent uh, you know opera companies like the Atlanta Opera?
2: Um, you know, there's quite a few. Uh, the, I have a few colleagues in America that have a, a nice career. Uh, recently, uh, I invited uh, another director here, Omer Ben Seadia, uh, who is who has a really nice career. Uh, she directed our production of Yardbird, uh, and you know, when it comes to training, my training is divided into two uh, because I'm an artistic director, but I'm also a general director. So there's the business side and the, there's the artistic side. And for the business side, I was really lucky to uh, attend Harvard Business School, uh, the Program of Leadership Development, which is an alternative MBA. It's a practical uh, application of, uh, of business. And uh, it, it was uh, back in 2016 uh, and I was extremely lucky and grateful to be there and learn so much on how business work while running the Atlanta Opera. So that really helped my career and, and the Atlanta Opera in moving forward. The autistic side is really divided into uh, acquiring the tools, uh, the theoretical tools to become an artist, you know, to go to the university, which I attended in Tel Aviv, the open university and study music and arts. But then there's the practical aspects of it, which are just as important, probably more important because you can learn theory until tomorrow, but until you actually there to direct the show, to work with people, uh, that's when it really counts. And in that regard, I was, again, extremely lucky because I attended the Seattle Opera Young Artist Program and worked with some of the greatest directors in the world and then spent seven years at the Metropolitan Opera on the staging staff. So that was a well-rounded way to learn the craft of being a director. Uh, but you know, going back to growing up in Israel, and you mentioned the military service, I was always torn between uh, a mind that was a mind of an artist and a mind of a scientist or a businessman. and. Uh, I, I, you know, I was playing the guitar and playing the keyboard when I was growing up. Uh, But at the same time, I, uh, in high school, I was uh, studying biology. And when I went to uh, the military, to the IDF, uh, I served in a a combat unit and I asked to be a medic. I wanted to be a medic because I thought my path uh, is going to be uh, becoming a doctor because that's what my parents wanted. And so I acquiesced for a, a short while. And, and that was a formative time in my life, you know, being a medic and, and seeing uh, some, some tough things back then. It was uh, back in the 90s, uh, in the early 90s, when uh, tensions were high in Israel. They're always high, but back then they were even higher. It was when Rabin was assassinated and there was significant uh, peace talks, the Oslo Uh, agreement with Arafat, etc. I was right there uh, in Jerusalem, actually just outside of Jerusalem, close to Ramallah and Beit El. And uh, those were formative days in my life. Uh, But when I uh, finished my army service, uh, I was on my way to medical school. And, you know, it seemed that my future was very clear to me. But that side of me, that, that artist side was gnawing at me. And to support myself through uh through my time in the university, I started working in um in the Israeli opera uh, in various in various roles, in all the roles you can imagine actually, from uh stage manager to stagehand to prop operator to lighting to costumes. I I did anything and everything at the Israeli opera. And that's where I I learned my craft. And so Those two sides of my brain, you know, the artistic side and the science side have led me later on to move into a position that incorporates both those, the artistic and the uh, business, which is what I'm doing right now.
0: I completely resonate with parts of that because I thought I was going to be a doctor um, because isn't that what all parents want? And then uh, pivoted to rabbi, um, which has its own artistic um, moments. Uh, You know, we just came off of the high holy days and did it in a way we never could have imagined. You know, as I I said to you earlier before we started recording, um, challenges also give opportunities. And so I'm curious, amidst all of this, you've mentioned um, the, the performing in the tent and everything. How are you, um, what are some of the opportunities that you see from all of this artistically um, and also for you personally? What are you learning during the pandemic?
2: So, uh, you know, you never waste a crisis. I think smarter people than, than us said that. Uh, and I, I thrive personally uh, when there's an emergency. Maybe it's the medic training. Um, Maybe it's the years I spent in the theater. Um, And when all this happened, uh, my thought was, how do you take all the obstacles and make them the way for a new business model uh, for a way to engage audiences for a way to create a new company. And one of the incredible opportunities that came up was the incredible talent that we can recruit to the Atlanta Opera. Uh, And what happened back in March is that all those incredible singers, musicians, were spewed out into the world. Uh, Their contracts were canceled. They were left vulnerable without health insurance. Uh, It's a devastating time for performing arts and specifically for uh, classical musicians and opera singers. And what happens in Atlanta, for whatever reason, some of the greatest singers in the world live in Atlanta. I don't know why, maybe it has to do with the generosity of people, maybe it has to do with the fact that we live in a big forest here. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with the traffic. (laughs) But it's true. But it's true. I mean, it's so all those incredible singers live here and normally I can't get on their calendar because they're too busy performing in Paris, London, and the Met in New York. And so to get on somebody like Jamie Barton's calendar would take me two years, three years in advance. And suddenly all of them are here in Atlanta, stuck, uh, without being able to do what they were trained to do and they love doing, which is share their talent with people and without health insurance, without income. And so we created this, um, this initiative of that we called the Atlanta Opera Company Players uh, and recruited 12 singers that are some of the leading singers in the world that live in Atlanta or nearby uh, and they're a part of the company this season. They're not only performing in our shows, they're also doing concerts, they're involved with the community, they're doing social media, they're doing uh, all kinds of activities of education and community engagement and they're very grateful to be working right now when a lot of colleagues are not working uh, so that was a, a major opportunity to, to change the business model. And I hope that in the future that will remain. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other one is the tent. And this, this idea of circus, uh, of a spectacle in the middle of this pandemic, is something that is uh, very attractive to a lot of people. Uh, and so I hope that this uh, darkest of times is going to actually yield in the future uh, very positive things for this organization.
0: What do you so, think, Peter? Should we it, do services in a tent? <laughs>
1: absolutely. I'm going to work on my, uh, but you know, Tomer, it really is. It's, it's so creative and amazing. And, you know, as, as you outline your vision uh, for the Atlanta operates, it's, it's similar to what we're, what we're doing here. Uh, you know, y- y- we have to reinvent ourselves and make ourselves relevant in this challenging time. Um, another similarity between uh, what you're doing and I think what Lauren and I here which is uh, you have to be both looking at the business side and the creative side at the same time. It's something we think about. The third thing um, that, that I think we're both all looking at, and I want to get your take on it is uh, we have to figure out how in these challenging times when we're doing the regular stuff and reinventing ourselves and dealing with the, you know, the serious issues of COVID, we have to figure out how to recharge and, and um, you know, keep ourselves fresh and uh, h- how, do you, how do you and I love, we love to hear from other leaders, how do you do that? How do you keep it? How do you keep yourself recharged in this time?
2: Well, so, you know, the, first of all, we, we talked about me as a, an artist, as a businessman uh, but, you know, the most important aspect of who I am is I'm a father and I'm a husband and my family is the most important thing for me. So I have those two amazing little girls, Maya and Emma, who are four and a half and 18 months. Uh, And this time has been so incredible for us as a family because we are together, I'm not traveling. Normally I'm spending about a hundred days out of the year outside, uh, traveling in other places. And most of my evenings are taken by the opera. So in the past seven months, we've had dinner every night. We've had breakfast every day. We spend the weekends together. I watched Maya uh, riding the bicycle and taught her how to ride the bicycle. Uh, Emma is playing the piano and is obsessed with, at 18 months, with The Flying Dutchman, Richard Wagner's uh, opera, strangely. (laughs) Uh, So so just being a father (laughs) and playing with them and jumping around, uh, listening to music and chasing them in the yard has been filling my soul. But the other side of it is we never stop, we never stop studying. Um, and I wake up early every day uh, and I study. And uh, I'm not a religious person. I attend the temple. Uh, I'm a member. I'm Israeli. I'm Jewish. Uh, but I don't define myself as uh, a religious person. Uh, my religion is philosophy. And so I read a lot of uh, A lot of great philosophers and and the book that really recharged me tremendously during this time uh, is a book called uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor in the time of a great pandemic. And he wrote some of the smartest, most human, profound leadership lessons uh, that I've ever read. And I've really gotten into this stoic philosophy world between him and Epictetus, and Seneca, uh, that's that's what keeps me going, and that's what makes me realize that the obstacle is the way, and that those restrictions that we have right now will allow us to find a better way moving forward. It will make us stronger.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so, you know, a last question. Um, I'm sure you get this often. Um, For those who think they don't like opera or want to take advantage of the fact that there are all kinds of things they can stream and all kinds of things they can listen to um, if they're not going to the tent, um, what would you suggest um, people start as kind of an introduction to opera?
2: You know, first of all, I don't come from a house that uh, appreciated opera. Um, I never grew up uh, with parents that, you know, played Puccini full volume on the weekend. Uh, I got into (laughs) opera because I love movies. And I realized watching movies that the music is such a huge part of a movie. When you think about uh, John Williams' movies uh, that he did with Steven Spielberg from Star Wars to Indiana Jones, uh, those soundtracks was what drew me to opera to begin with. And then I realized as I, as I studied and learned about operas that they're like movies with the soundtrack. And there's something beyond that with operas that they're live experience. They're like live movies that assemble all those different arts. It's not only music and theater and design and lighting and projections and acting and all the arts combined together but there is something very powerful in the communal consumption, in breathing the same air. And in COVID days, that's a, uh, that's a bad thing, breathing the same air. Uh, but there is something very profound about being in the same space with people, reacting at the same time to what you see on stage, and learning something about who you are, about your own humanity from those stories. That combined with great voices and with music, to me is the greatest art form that exists. That's why I didn't pursue the medical world. That's why I gave my life to opera and I never look back. And so that's my evangelical um, way of thinking about opera. But now opera in the tent, in the circus, is a whole different experience. It's the only way that uh, the performing arts can exercise right now. And we found, along with all those epidemiologists that we're working with, with Dr. Carlos De Rio, John Halpert from uh, Grady Hospital, the CEO of Grady, all of them came together and figured out with us, how can we reopen safely? And this idea of the tent is the epitome of that. So not only is it safe to be there and watch a live performance, because the walls of the tent are up, because fresh air is coming in, because everybody's required to wear masks, because the design of the show is based on social distancing but also because there is a certain grit in a circus. There's a certain spectacle in a circus. Along, if you look at history, across history, in the worst of times, whether it's a recession or a pandemic or a world war, the circus found a way to pitch a tent by the railroad station, make it happen, and despite all the worst conditions in the world, create a world that is all about escapism and show business and glamor and a moment that will allow us to stop thinking about our troubles, despite everything else going on in the world. And that's exactly the ethos that we're taking in the Atlanta Opera is this idea of grit and perseverance through the, diff- the most difficult of time and connecting with the community. Amazing. But
1: it's, what a great, it's just, I could listen to you all day. It's just so, <laughs> so beautifully said. Uh, we've so enjoyed this time together and can't wait for our community to come to the Big Ten and to, to see it. Um, uh, I, I might be so bold as to to correct only one thing, which is you, uh, you said, Tomer, earlier that uh, I'm not very religious. And I think you answered every answer uh, like the, the chief uh, Ashkenazic rabbi, with <laughs> such a Jewish soul. And um, um, it just shines through in, in, in who you are and, and what you do. and. Uh, the difference that you make in our community and in our world. You are, you are just one of a kind.
2: Thank you. Thank you
0: so much for being with us today. Thank
2: you. It was a pleasure.
0: Wow. What,
1: what, Just what, I I don't think rock star is, but what an opera star. That was, that was incredible.
0: It's so fun to think about all the creativity that's happening there. And as a reminder to our listeners, um, go to the Atlanta Opera's website, all of the shows begin October 22nd, and there will be a movie version uh, being released as well. Yeah. Um,
1: but and the Kaiser of Atlantis, I think our, our members and, and our listeners are really going to it
0: For sure. So we are back, as we said at the beginning of the, the episode, and this is the first of many fun interviews and conversations we're having with those within our community. Um, and as a reminder, please send in your questions. Uh, we would be excited to Talk about the things you're wondering about um, in a future episode. So please send that and any other ideas to podcast at the-temple.org.
1: That's right. We booked six uh, interviews this week. So we're really looking forward to you're going to talk to six of our favorite people that uh, have so many interesting ideas and uh, things to share with us. So that's coming up. The World Zionist Congress starts today and uh, excited to, uh, to be able to report in. Uh, from my time as a delegate there in a coming episode as well.
0: You'll find out if it was more comfortable to sit on a plane for 20 hours or sit on Zoom for 20 plus hours.
1: Yes, I did lose my luggage the last time, but uh, I would would trade in no luggage to be in Jerusalem anytime.
0: (laughs) Amen. Well, this has been another episode of The Podcast from The Temple.
1: Where we inspire lives.
0: And transform our world.